Lord, we thank you that you have brought us here today to hear your word, to be filled with your life, to be filled with your edification, your encouragement. Lord, will you lift up the hands that hang down, put life into the things that have seemed to be dead, that wake up the things that have fallen asleep, that we would charge into this next year with a heart and, and, a, and a, an attitude that says our God is able, and if God is for us, who can be against us? May we be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. May we be alert. May we be brave. May everything we do be done in love. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So in Luke chapter 7, um, we find Jesus having some meals and getting in trouble for having some meals. You know, much of Jesus' ministry was eating. I don't know if you've noticed that. (laughs) It wasn't all of it, but it was important. Especially in that culture, who you ate with was who you accepted. Now, this is in every culture, really. It's a little less in our culture than it was in theirs, but it is a, is a, is a Christian ideal, but it was very much in their culture. If you ate at somebody's house, you were putting your stamp on them, that they were worthy of you. So Jesus, to claim to be who he was, to be the Messiah, to be the Son of God, and to eat with certain people just didn't seem to jive with the Pharisees. Didn't seem to jive with a lot of religious people because he was eating with people, and by eating with them, he was accepting them. And you don't accept these kind of people. Because in their mind, if you accept them, you accepted their sin. Here's the deal, though. It seems like when he ate with people, they changed. You know, the scripture in the New Testament talks about somebody that refuses to repent. And they're just causing trouble, and they're causing trouble, and they will not repent, and they will not change. And the scripture tells the people in the church, don't eat with these people anymore. That's interesting, isn't it? It doesn't say don't eat with sinners. It says people, it's really talking about church people that refuse to repent. Now, I don't want you just applying that to whoever you feel like not having a meal with. Because really, I don't think there's anybody in the room that that fits. You'd know about it if there was. When he said that, there was like a, an announcement. This was somebody that was firmly, you know, a troublemaker. But for the most part, uh, much of their, their, their life was eating together, living together, um, uh, accepting one another, even when you normally wouldn't have accepted these people. It's interesting to find out, if you think about it, um, how, much, how much God has called us to be together. And this is not what I'm talking about today, but if you ever noticed that when he describes hell, it's a place of great loneliness. It's when he talks about uh, the wicked servant being cast out. Remember, he's cast out in the outer darkness. Everybody else is inside. He's cast out. When he talks about heaven, have you ever noticed that there is no scenes in heaven where there's just one guy? Now, maybe your view of heaven is you under a tree reading a book. But I can't find that view of heaven in the scripture. In fact, the view of heaven is people, a lot of people all together. And in fact, I know people say, oh, man. I just want to like, I'm going to party all day. And you know what? Hell's going to be fun. It's going to be a party because all the fun people are going to be there. You know, the, one of the main characteristics, according to Jesus, of hell is separation from him and from one another. It will be a great place of loneliness. So should the church of Jesus Christ be a place of loneliness or a place of welcoming and acceptance, place of bringing people in? If we want heaven on earth, you got to accept one another. So much of Jesus' ministry was, yes, teaching and preaching, but it was also eating. And that may sound, man's got to eat, right? But it's not just about meeting and the need of eating. It was about who he ate with and how he went to his house. A lot of his ministry took place going to people's houses. So this causes a bit of trouble because he's stirring up. He's eating with the wrong kind of people. And this is what he says in Luke chapter 7. He says, uh, because they've asked him about John... And um, they, John has, has sent his disciples to ask if Jesus was really the one. John has gotten to a place where he doesn't really understand his place. You can understand that. John, John knew who he was when he was preparing a way for the Lord. When John was preparing a way for the Lord, he knew his place. I am the voice. Crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. When he spoke to his disciples, he says, that's the God. This is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Well, what happens when he comes? What's John supposed to do? I don't even know the answer to that question. 
I only know this. He, was, he, he knew he was supposed to decrease so that Jesus would increase. I think the smartest thing for John would have been to just start following Jesus around. But he didn't do that. So he gets to a point where he's thrown in prison. And, and he was thrown in prison for a righteous cause. Uh, but he's thrown in prison and he starts to doubt. Because this is what happens when we, we're not sure how we fit. We, get, we, we start to panic. We start to doubt ourselves. And we start to doubt the people that led us. And we start to doubt the people we trusted in. So he starts doubting in Jesus. And he says, uh, he says, he sends his disciples who he shouldn't have had any disciples at this point. Remember at the beginning of the book of John, he says, behold the Lamb of God. And two of his disciples left him and started following Jesus. That was the right move. What happened to the, to the disciples that stuck with John? They get to be, you know, the wimps that come to Jesus and go, are you the one or should we look for another? And after John the Baptist has said multiple times, he's the one. And John didn't know he was the one because he had a hunch or because he was, you know, conf- because he saw Jesus and was impressed by him. He knew he was the one because the Holy Spirit confirmed it. That's not negotiable. The Holy Spirit said, God had told him, when the Holy Spirit comes and remains, you'll know he's the one. John said, I saw it. He, he landed on him and he remained. I know he's the one. And so John began to get weak in his faith. He sent his disciples and they asked Jesus, are you the one or should we wait for another? Jesus says, look what have you seen? You've seen the, the, the dead raised. You've seen the blind see. You've seen the kingdom of God proclaimed. There's your answer. And so... When they leave, the opportunity was for Jesus to be offended because John had been offended by him. But instead of being offended or hurt or defensive, Jesus begins to praise John. He begins to, because I'm sure the crowd at this point starts to feel like, oh, that John. And they feel like if they want to be loyal to Jesus, they have to have a problem with John now. But Jesus stops that right away. And he says, listen, he says, there's never been a prophet. Since Moses has never done a prophet that's been greater than John. Never a prophet born of a woman that's greater than John. But he says, even the least in the kingdom of God is greater than these. And then he says this in, in verse 24. When the messengers of John had left, he began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind. But what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing. Those who are splendidly clothed and live in luxury are found in royal palaces. What did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and one who's more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it's written, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. I say to you, among those born of women, there is none greater than John, yet he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Now, when all the people and the tax collectors heard this, they acknowledged God's justice, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But... The Pharisees and the lawyers rejected God's purpose for themselves, not having been baptized by John. I want you to hear something here. This is very important. you got two groups of people, the people and the tax collectors. That's code for the dirty, unwashed masses and the sinners. These are the, these are the low people. The low people acknowledged God's justice. But the high people, the religious leaders, the, the lawyers who, it's not like lawyers like we think of today. It wasn't Roman law they were studying. It was the law of Moses. These are the people that knew the scripture inside and out. They don't see God in this. And, G, and the, the gospel tells us exactly why. It's because the sinners and the tax collectors and the people had been baptized by John. And these people hadn't. Now, I want you to see why that's important. Because what was the baptism of John? It was repentance. Now, in order to repent, you got to think you have a problem. If you think you've got everything together, you don't want to repent. You don't need to repent. In fact, when it became the cool thing to do, some of the religious people showed up just to be seen. Have you ever done that? Just go to an event just so you're seen there, so people see your face. That's what they wanted to do. And John calls them out. Now, can you imagine being a leader and everybody respects you? And then this guy calls you out in front of everybody and and really, really makes you look stupid in front of everybody else. He says, who warned you? Who warned you about the coming judgment? He says, if you're really true about this, if you're, really, if, you're, if you're for real here, bear fruits in accordance to repentance. Don't just repent with your mouth. Repent with your life. Well, they didn't like that. So this repentance, 
Remember, John, his, his place was, the scripture said about him, he's the one that will go and prepare the way. He says, I will make all of the high places, all the, all the mountains I will bring low, and the valleys I will lift up. So how did John do that? Well, what are the valleys? When we're talking about people, what are valleys? What are the low points? Well, those are the people that just think they're just so bad that they're not worthy of God. And you know what? In order for Jesus to minister to those people, they had to be lifted up. How were they lifted up? Their sins were forgiven. Because I tell you something, the thing that, that, that makes you feel unworthy is your own, you're looking in the mirror, you know your flaws, you know your, your problems. And guess what? Before Jesus, it, it was not a bad thing to know that, and it's still not. But when Jesus came, he came to take away that sin. So you're not, you're not focusing it for the rest of your life. But, but in order to come to Jesus, you first have to recognize you need him. So there were low people that were messed up, that were dirty, that were, that were sinners. And John offered them a chance at a fresh start. So in doing so, he lifted up the low. Because all of a sudden, they're worthy. And all of a sudden, when Jesus preaches, they can hear it for the first time. Because they say, I'm worthy. Now, at the same time, the Bible says, he says, through John, through this voice, I will bring the mountains low. I'll level the mountains. And what are the mountains? What are the high places? Those are the people that are so proud that they don't think they need anything. So how did John level them? He didn't level them by baptizing them because they didn't want to be baptized. So he leveled them by yelling at them, by getting in their face and saying, you don't realize you need this more than you think. And in doing so, a way was prepared for the Lord. So we see that those that had repented and those that had been forgiven heard Jesus' words and it made sense. But those that had rejected his offer, that had rejected his servant, that had rejected repentance were hardened and couldn't see God's justice. Then he says, this is what happens right after this. To then, what then shall I compare the men of this generation? What are they like? They're like children who sit in the marketplace and call to one another. And they say, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. In other words, John came and he was rough and he was rude and he smelled funny. But that was what they needed at the time. You know, in order to make rough places smooth, you don't need something smooth. You need something rough. Right? If you're sanding a table, you don't take silk. It's going to be a long time. If you want to make a rough place smooth, what do you take? You take something else that's rough. Sand it down. John was the sandpaper. (laughs) No, none of you want to be called to be sandpaper. Some people have taken it upon themselves to be sandpaper when God had called them to be sandpaper. And that causes problems. But John, he's rough. And so you know, what they have a problem with John is like, why are, you so, why are you so depressed, John? Why are you so serious? Why are, you so, why are you so angry? Why are you so smelly? You know, they got a problem. He says, what did you go out? You went out into the wilderness. Like you took a trip. You packed a picnic, you brought your kids, and you went out into the wilderness. What were you expecting to find out there? Well, you guys went out like, you know, there's a, there, you, know, you know some places around here where there's roads, there's secondary roads, there's tertiary roads, and then there's just like sort of a trail. And we don't take these trails in the wintertime, but if you have a four-by-four, four, there's you go back there. Well, you are not going back there expecting to find a five-star French restaurant. Are you? Somebody says, I'm going to take you. I got a meal prepared for you. And they, they take you so far with the truck and they say, you got to get off. We're going to get on a quad. And they drive out on the quad and blah, 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 And you're going through mud puddles and blah, blah. You are not saying, where's the Mater D? I wore my tux. Where, I mean, come on. I'm, we're in the wrong place. What are you expecting? He says, you guys went out to the wilderness to find this guy. And you think you're going to find some guy dressed in nice clothes with eloquent speech? Then, then when Jesus comes, they're saying, dude, you're, you're, you're way too much of a party guy. You're eating with people. You're, you're, oh, you're celebrating all the time. You need to be more serious. He says, uh, look what he says here. He says in verse 33, 
For John the Baptist has come, eating no bread and drinking no wine. You say, he has a demon. But then the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say, behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Do you think Jesus was a gluttonous man or a drunkard? No, but that's what they gossiped about him. He's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. He says, yet wisdom is vindicated by all her children. Now, one of the Pharisees was requesting him to dine with him. And he entered the Pharisee's house and he reclined at the table. Now, this is the great mercy of God that he still ate. He, ate, he didn't just eat at the poor people's house. He didn't just eat at the tax collector's house. He ate at the Pharisee's house too. He was fair. He was just. He goes to the house and he reclines at the table. And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. The Greek here says immoral woman. Usually in the Bible, not all the time, but usually that's code for she does some things with her body she shouldn't do. That was the, in their culture, that was the way they said it. That's not always the case, but she might be a prostitute. She might just be somebody who um, just goes out and is, is sinning all the time, drinking all the time, sleeping around. I don't know. She's somebody they consider very immoral. And they know about her. She's got a reputation. Because she comes in the room... She learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, and she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. And standing behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume. Take a minute and imagine this scene taking place in this church. It's awkward. Very awkward. It's weird. I'm sure we'd be standing around going, should we, should we do something? The ushers would be kind of giving you a look like, well, you want us to do something here? This is weird. This lady's not doing this for attention. Those tears aren't fake. Those tears are real. And those aren't tears of sadness. They're tears of gratitude. She's kissing his feet. She's crying on his feet, kissing his feet, wiping her tears with her hair, and then putting expensive, expensive perfume on his feet. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman who is touching him. Because in their mind, even touching him, you don't even let somebody like that touch you. That she is a sinner. In other, in other versions of this, other angles from this, we see that, you know, Judas has a problem with this too. He's got a problem. Whether this is the same story or another story, we know uh, in a, either a very similar story or the exact same story, he's got a problem with this because that's money that could have gone to the poor, is what he says. But then the scripture rats him out and says, actually, he was stealing from the collection pot. <laughs> But the religious people aren't, aren't stealing here. The, the Pharisee guy isn't stealing. What he's concerned with is that's a woman you shouldn't be touching. Then Jesus responds to this. And, and I love the, the grace that Jesus displays as he responds to this man. He says, Simon, he's not talking to Peter. He's talking to the Pharisee. This Pharisee's name was Simon. He says, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, say it, teacher. Now, I want you to see when he says, say it, teacher, or say it, rabbi, this is a sign of respect. So this Pharisee is not one of those that hates Jesus. This is a fairly good guy. There were a few of them. Nicodemus was a secret agent. Nobody asked him to be a secret agent, but he was just a little too shy to come out of the closet and say that he believed in Jesus. So he, Nicodemus is meeting like at midnight meetings, midnight coffee, saying, hey, Jesus, I, I got to know. <laughs> Joseph of Arimathea was a, was a, a Pharisee that stood up for Jesus. Um, so there, there, were, there were Pharisees that did believe in Jesus, but many of them, the Bible says, were, believed in him but were afraid to confess him for fear that they'd be put out of their place. So... This guy is bold enough to invite him to dinner. Do you notice he's not trying to trap Jesus? He, he really is inviting him to dinner. So this is one of the good guys. But he's still stuck in his religious ways. So he's saying, you must not know who this lady is. You would not even let her touch you. 
He says, Simon, I've got something to say. He says, say it, teacher. In verse 41, a moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other owned 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Now, whether it's 500 or 50 denarii, this is still a lot of money. But you see the difference between 550 is tenfold. I mean, it's a, it's a big difference, right? He says, which one will love him more? And, and, and the Pharisee replies to him. He says, Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you've judged correctly. Turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? Now, it's got to be getting awkward for her too. She's not deaf. She's sitting there and they're talking about her, really not well. And at that moment, you just want to shrink back into the wall. Just, just, just disappear. You know what? I'm sorry I came. She's still there. And now Jesus says, you see this woman? I can imagine at that point, she's like, don't point me out. Please just, uh, just go back to the parables. Tell them to close their eyes and, and picture the parable. Do something like that. He says, you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet. Ooh. In their culture, in their custom, when you entered somebody's house, you see they're wearing sandals, they got bare feet, their feet get stinky and dusty and dirty. It was customary to have somebody wash, wash your feet or at least give them a basin to wash their own feet. He said, I entered your house and you didn't even give me any. So while this guy might be one of the good guys for inviting Jesus, he's still treating Jesus with arm's length. He's not letting him completely in. He's still not really treating him with the honor he deserves. You didn't even offer me any water, but she has wet my feet with her tears and she wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. Maybe he was ashamed to. Now you say, that's not weird. (laughs) I've been to many of your houses. Nobody gave me a kiss, but in their culture, you did. You gave him a kiss. That was customary. You know, you, you ever read in the Bible where it says, greet one another with a holy kiss? And you're like, well, we need another translation on that. <laughs> I think, I, I forget what it is. It might be the NIV. There's a, there's a translation that really wimps out and says, greet one another warmly. <laughs> Chickens. But it says, greet one another with a holy kiss. In that culture, you kissed one another. It wasn't like a full-on, you know, smooch on the mouth, but it was, a, you know, you kiss each other on the cheek. You, and so he said, you didn't give me a kiss. You didn't, you, I'm really feeling like a stranger in your house. I'm not being honored here. But this woman has not stopped kissing my feet. You know, the same feet that you didn't let me wash. I wouldn't want to kiss those feet. Now, we all say we want to kiss the feet of Jesus. There are worship songs about it. <laughs> But, but what about Jesus' stinky feet? What about his stinky, dirty feet? You still want to kiss him? Well, yeah, now you do, right? <laughs> but at the time, that's embarrassing. It's gross. She's doing this. He says she hasn't ceased, which I don't know if that means while he's still talking, she's still kissing his feet. The awkward level is through the roof here, guys. Then he says this, and this is beautiful. He says, you didn't anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. It was expensive perfume. He says, for this reason, I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. Then he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. Now, I believe from what he said that she already had a, a revelation that he was for, had forgiven her sins because he's saying that's why she loves, because she's forgiven. She's already been forgiven. But he reaffirms it again to her. He says, woman, your, your, your sins are forgiven you. And then he says this. Those who were reclining at the table to him began to say to themselves, who is this man who forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. That's a dramatic statement. He who has forgiven much... This person forgives much, so they love a lot. This person's forgiven little, so they love little. Now, I want to ask you a question. I want you to just just be very honest here. Do you really think that that Pharisee had only a little to be forgiven of? No, but he only thought he had a little. You see, they both had much sin to be forgiven. 
The scripture makes it very clear that all of our righteousness on our own is like filthy rags. The Bible says there was none righteous, no, not one. So he's talking to this guy from a frame of reference. This is a guy who thinks he's kept most of the law. Now, I'm sure this woman has sinned more than him, but this guy's sin is big enough that that at that point, it, it doesn't even matter. They've both sinned so much they could never repay because one sin is worthy of death, right? That's why we needed Jesus. So think about this. Jared, if I said to you, you owe me a trillion dollars, and I meant it. You see, he's laughing now because he knows that that can't possibly be true. And in fact, it's such an astronomical amount, we just go, okay, whatever. But if you owed me a trillion dollars, let's just, let's bring it down, a billion. You owe me a billion dollars. Would it make much difference to you if I said, make it two billion? It really wouldn't because it's so high up there that you can't imagine it, right? It's so far beyond. The truth of the matter is, no matter how much this woman had sinned, this man had so much sin that you really, it's not going to make much of a difference in the end. It's a dramatic rescue, The issue was she was aware of it and he wasn't. She was aware of her own need for a savior. He had rejected it. His pride kept him from seeing what he needed. I I want to ask you something. This guy is arrogant enough to believe that he only needs to be forgiven little. Now, I used to read this verse, and maybe some of you did in the same way. I used to read this verse and think it meant that the, the, the really, really messed up people The really, really, the people that had the dramatic stories, that somehow they had a greater capacity to love than I did. Well, the truth of it is, is that they might, if they recognize their need for a Savior more than I recognize my need for a Savior. But if my eyes are open, I realize I need Jesus just as much as they do. The problem is we've cleaned it up. Jesus said to the Pharisees, he says, you guys are like tombs that have been painted nice white paint. So on the outside, you look beautiful, but you're dead on the inside. So they've learned how to act righteous. And when I say act righteous, I don't mean really live righteous. I mean, they've, they've learned how to look righteous without being righteous. And so they, they do all the right stuff. They make it look good, and everybody thinks they're fine. You know, this is the, this is the thing we must resist as good church-going Christian people. We, we have to be aware that, yes, we are righteous by His righteousness. We are worthy by His worthiness, but it is not our doing that's doing it. And we have to recognize that no matter how cleaned up our act was, no matter whether you are just a nice Good, moral, living person who happened to get saved because you believed the gospel. You needed Jesus just as much as the heroin addict on the street. Some people, I've heard many people go, oh, I just wish I had a testimony like theirs. Oh, I wish I had had my period in life where I could have done those things so I could have had a testimony like that. You don't think you have a testimony? That's pretty sad. Do you not realize how great you've been rescued? The problem is we think we're picturing in our head that Jesus didn't have to do a whole lot. You know, he died the same death for you that he had to die for them. It took everything to save you. It was not a minor rescue. We think we're so well off. You're not. You weren't. Thank God he saved us. The book of Hebrews says it's so great a salvation. This is like us saying, you know, you know, you know, you know having just a, a dramatic rescue attempt where we happen to, I mean, you're going to stretch your imagination, but you happen to be, uh, somebody puts you in a cage and they put you underwater and the water's rising and you're about to run out of oxygen. As soon as that water gets over your mouth, you're in trouble and there's sharks all around and, and, and there's stingrays and, 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 you know, not only that, but you've been poisoned and somebody comes down and rescues you and fights off the sharks and breaks open the cage and gives the antidote to the poison and you come out and somebody says, what a dramatic rescue. And you say, yeah, but wouldn't it have been cooler if the lake was on fire when that was happening? <laughs> it was dramatic, but it could have been more dramatic, right? What are you, Michael Bay? You, it, it could have been more dramatic. I'm pretty dramatic. 
This is what happens when we go, yeah, yeah. Well, well, they had to be saved. God had to, to really do a work in them. But, you know, he did a work in me, but he had to really do a work in them, if you know what I mean. He, guys, if he didn't really do a work in you, you would still be dead. Jesus said to the Pharisees, he said, if you don't believe in me, you will die in your sins. Now, here's the issue. The issue is not, well, those dirty, rotten sinners, they, they have much more gratitude because they've been forgiven much. That is true. That's exactly what Jesus said. But the issue was not that they had so great sin, but the issue was that their sin was so obvious and so out there that they were aware of it. And so because they were aware of their great depravity, they were aware of how messed up they were, they were grateful when they were saved. The problem with the Pharisees wasn't that they didn't have enough sin to forgive. The problem was most of their sin was so hidden that they no longer knew it was there. But Jesus knew it was there. So because they thought they'd only been forgiven little, they didn't love a lot. There wasn't a lot love to give. See, the issue for us today, if we take this equation, if you've been forgiven much, you love much. If you've forgiven little, you love little. What do we do about that? If we start to notice, I don't have a lot of compassion for people. There's not a lot of mercy in my life. Sometimes the cause of that, now sometimes the cause of that is you just need to be filled up with the Spirit of God. You need to, you need to just, take, just ask Him, Lord, fill me again with you. But a lot of times the issue is, is that our eyes have not been on Him. And when we start to feel that way, there's pride that's crept in and we're not as grateful as we used to be. Because when you really recognize how much Jesus did for you, there is not a person in the world that you consider unworthy of your love and mercy. It's important that we understand mercy and grace. They're two different things. The best description I've ever heard was that mercy is not getting what you deserve. Right? You had some stuff coming to you. You, you. you had some bad stuff coming your way. It was your fault. Mercy is, I didn't get what I deserved. Grace is getting what you didn't deserve. So mercy was God rescuing you. Mercy was him forgiving your debt. Mercy was him wiping you clean. Grace was him giving you a place in the kingdom of God, giving you a, a name, Making him party, making you part of his kingdom, giving you the right to be called the child of God. Grace is a gift of God. Mercy is God saying, I'm not going to kill you. The Bible says that that grace that came through Jesus was a result of the mercy of God. God had mercy on us and saw our sin, and instead of punishing you for your sin, he, through the grace of God, sent Jesus to do what you could not do, to bear what you couldn't bear, and to make you who you never could be. And that should cause great gratitude to come from us. As we in different churches in Lloydminster have been discussing what, what, you know, there's always a big discussion around the Good Friday service because everybody's got a different view of what it should be. And, and it's, it's tricky because we all come from different backgrounds and traditions and there's, you know, you're trying to find some unity. And, and, and the one thing that always just comes back to me, what, what do I think of when I think of Good Friday? And the only word that comes to my mind above all the others is gratitude. Because when I look at the cross of Christ, I feel deep gratitude. And that gratitude causes me to love more than I knew I could love. And that's not my love, it's His love. But when you know you've been shown mercy, you are easy. It's easy for you to give mercy. It's easy for you to love when you know how great you've been loved. Here's the question. Can we be more aware of His salvation? Could we be more aware of His mercy? Now, I want you to know, this is, this is where it gets tricky. Because if you live a life where you are focused on your own sin, that's not a good thing, right? Where you're just constantly thinking about your own sin. What does that usually cause? It causes guilt and it causes shame. And that keeps you from the love of God. But if you never acknowledge that you needed Him, if you never acknowledge that there was a lot of sin to forgive, it causes pride. You see, the way you should look at it, let, let, me, let, let me ask you just to think of it this way. Have you ever, anybody owed a big credit card debt before? Has that ever been a thing? Or a debt of any sort? You had a debt. When you'd think of it, what would happen? You get that feeling in your stomach. 
it would not feel good. Now, what if they called you and said that debt has been forgiven? Pretty cool, hey? See, before that, every time you thought of it, it just wrecks your day, just ruins your day. You could be having a happy thought, then you think you owe this much money, and like, oh, it brings you down. Unless you're just really good at being in debt. (laughs) Nobody should be good at being in debt. For most of you, if you had a big debt, it would weigh on you, wouldn't it? Every time you think of it, it would ruin the moment. You'd feel that feeling in the pit of your stomach. But now, what if they called you and said, your debt has been forgiven? It was a massive debt. Your debt has been forgiven. Now, every time you thought of it, would you feel the pit in your stomach? No, most likely you'd feel great joy, great relief, great gratitude that somebody paid your bill. So you see, both times I'm looking at the debt. But one time I'm looking at the debt as not paid. And the other time I'm looking at the debt as paid in full. It's a big difference, isn't it? Because when, you, when you're looking at your sin like it's not been paid, you feel guilt, you feel shame, you feel condemnation. There is no condemnation now to them that are in Christ Jesus. When you think of your debt and you consider it paid in full, and he will never, ever bring it up again, oh, there's joy in that. You know, the Old Testament says, in your sins and your lawless deeds, I will remember no more. Now, what he's saying is, I will never bring that. That will never come into my relationship with you. That won't come up on judgment. That is not something I'm bringing into the courtroom. It is wiped up. It's, it's gone. As far as the east and from the west, it's removed from you. Yes. Praise God. Yes. But now, I've, I, we, I've had conversations with people that, that, you know, I remember being in a meeting and the, the question was, have any of you ever uh, made some parenting decisions that were wrong? You ever made some mistakes with your kids? And one person said, no. Really? No. Why do you say that? Because we could think of parenting problems that they made. (laughs) Well, it's under the blood. Well, yeah, sure it is. Well, if God doesn't remember it, I don't remember it. I get what you're saying. (laughs) I hear you. I think you might be missing the point. The scripture that they brought up was Paul saying, I've harmed no one. But you know that when he said that, he was talking to a certain church, and he says, I've given you no reason not to trust me. But how many times in the Bible does Paul go, I did a lot of bad things? After the fact. He told this story as many chances as God. Every time he went on trial, he's like, let me tell you my story. Do you think that every time we read the scripture about Peter denying Jesus, and we read it out loud, God goes, he did what? (laughs) Wait, what? What? Peter, get in here. Yes, Lord. Did you deny me three times? Yes, Lord. You know this. We go over this every time somebody reads their Bible, which is pretty much all the time. But it's under the blood. What's under the blood? I forget now. Peter, why are you in my room? You called me in here. Wait a second. Somebody's reading the Bible. You did what? You know, do you think that's what's happening? Do you think when Paul's telling his testimony and he says, he says, I persecuted the Christians. God's like, no, stop lying. You, you didn't do that. Do you think when he writes in the New Testament, Holy Spirit inspired, I am least fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church, that Jesus is like, where did this come from? No, God is aware of it. But as far as he's concerned, it is separated from you as far as the east is from the west. He's not surprised every time he reads the Bible. Oh, what? What? And then forgets right away like some really, really messed up psych patient. Like some goldfish who's just swimming around thinking, new ocean, new ocean, new ocean. (laughs) See, God wouldn't be able to function very well. And we wouldn't have a Bible. He's aware. But to him... The blood of Jesus has completely, completely, totally paid for it. So it does not belong to you anymore. It does not tarnish you anymore. It's not part of you anymore. It's not on your record. And when he looks at you, he sees not your sin, but he sees the cross of Jesus Christ. And that's what he sees. So it's not wrong to look back because if Paul did it, if Peter did it, we can do it. It's not wrong to look back and go, oh boy, he forgave me of a lot. But judge, judge it by your reaction. If when you think of that, you still feel great guilt. 
you need to really go back and focus on the cross of Jesus. Because it should be as far away from you in your mind as it is in God's mind. It's not yours anymore. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 7 that when we come to repentance, it leads to deliverance or salvation without regret. It should be so separate from you, it's like looking at somebody else. And yet, there's a great gratitude that you recognize, oh, I've been saved. I've been saved. Paul says this, you know, you see it in his writings. He says to me, he says to, he says to Timothy, he goes, to me, probably most of all, he said, look at all the stuff I did, but God chose to show his mercy through me. He was aware of it every day of his life. And it did not inspire condemnation in him, but inspired great love. There was great love because he recognized. Now, I want to ask you another question. I want you to think about it honestly. Do you, Paul said he was the chief of sinners. He's not saying, I am the chief of sinners. He's saying, I hold the record. I'm the, I'm the guy. Yeah. If anybody was a sinner, it was me. Do you think, in reality, he was the greatest sinner in the country? No. I don't think he was. No. But he was aware of his own need for a Savior. Do you think that when John says, and he writes his gospel, and every time he refers to himself, he refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved, do you think he thinks that Jesus loved him more than everybody else? No. But he was so aware of Jesus' love for him that that's all he can think of. Even when he refers to he says, I'm the guy he loved. I'm not speaking for them, but I'm speaking for me. He loved me. Paul was not a greater sinner than everyone else. He was, he, he was pretty bad. But he wasn't, he wasn't worse off than everybody else in the country, but he was aware. He was aware of how great he'd been saved. Now, I'm going to tell you something. I do not want you to go back and dredge up your life and start digging up all your dirt. That's not healthy. But I do want you to get to a place where God opens your eyes to how great a salvation you've been given that you realize just how much mercy you've been shown. Really. Because if you find yourself not willing to show other people mercy, if you find yourself like those religious people going, ugh, that lady, she's touching Jesus. Oh, there's going to be perfume on the floor. Oh, my dinner is ruined. If you find that to be the issue, you're a little bit blind to what Jesus has done for you. In fact, Peter says, somebody who starts to drift away from this love and this brotherly kindness and this, all this other stuff, he says, this person is either blind or short-sighted, having forgotten their former purification of sin. What happens is if we begin to think, we begin to drift into a place where we think, you know, I, I was at a place where I thought, man, thank God Jesus saved me. And I still say, thank God Jesus saved me. But when I think of it, It wasn't that bad. We've lost sight. I don't want you to go back and go, oh, I was bad. Oh, I was bad. I want you to go back and go, oh, he was good. Oh, he was good. I want you to magnify the mercy of God. And we we magnify it corporately here, and we say he's been good to us, but we got to get personal about this. I want you to recognize that the debt you owed was far more than you can pay, and now it is paid in full. How great a mercy we've been shown. Oh, the great mercy we've been shown. When you know you've received mercy, you've got a lot of mercy to give. When you know you've been forgiven, you can love all sorts of people. When you know you've been shown grace, you can extend grace. And I know that nobody in the room today is worse in the eyes of God than the one sitting next to you. We are all in great need of a Savior. It will really help you to minister to the lost if you knew how lost you were before he found you. It will help you. Because when you approach somebody right as a righteous saint, son of God, that's who you are. That's how you should always be. That's your identity. When you approach them as a righteous saint, child of God, who recognizes I was in the same place as you, you can relate to anybody on the planet. And you don't have to become a sinner again to relate to them. You simply have to know we need the same thing. You and me, we need the same thing. You don't need more grace than I need. You don't need more mercy than I need. Because I've become aware of the mercy of God. 
Because I, I want to ask you again, I'm asking a lot of questions. I'm not really giving you a fair chance to answer. But if Jesus said to Simon the Pharisee, he who's been forgiven little loves little, do you really think that somebody who's loving little, do you really think that's where God wanted him to be? Do you really think that Jesus wanted Simon to consider himself to be forgiven little? Like, think about it. If the, if the solution is, if we're going to love much, we need to know how much we've been forgiven. What should have happened? I think Simon should have put himself in the same position as that woman and said, me and you, we're the same here. We need it just as much. I just didn't realize it because I had dressed my sin up in nice suits and ties. I had dressed my sin up into socially acceptable sin like jealousy and pride and bitterness and resentment and judgment instead of your obvious sin, which culturally we've rejected. I'm not saying, I'm not saying that once you just sin, well, it's all the same, you might as well just keep sinning. There are degrees, I understand that, but it's just as filthy in his eyes. And as we live righteously, as we love righteously, it's good to be aware of how great you've been saved. When we sing that song, Amazing Grace, you know, it's been sung for centuries. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. You have to know, wretch is not present tense. Because the scripture never calls you a sinner again. It calls you a saint. But wretch is past tense. What does wretch mean? It means utterly without any redeeming qualities. There's nothing redeeming about you. You're just a wretch. Even if you hear that word wretch, you would not want to be called that. You find in the New Testament, you find people that are aware of who they were and say, in these things you formerly walked, but now you are children of light. Walk as children of light. You were sinners, now you're saints. This is what the scripture says. If you want to get a, a revelation of that, read Ephesians. Huge revelation on that. And so especially chapters 4 and 5. And so when we realize who we are, I don't call myself wretched anymore. I recognize I was a wretch. So when I sing Amazing Grace that saved a wretch like me, saved, past tense, I needed to be saved. I was a wretch. But he saved me. So I go from being lost to being found. I go from being blind to seeing. I go from being a stranger to being a son. Isn't it wonderful? You look at the parable of the prodigal son. It's the son that realized how bad it was on his own without his father that was able to enter the party and just accept his father's love. It was the son that thought he was doing all the right things that would not allow himself to go into the same party as that guy. Well, you know, the end of the story is one of them got to eat fat calf and the other one got to stay outside with manure. Which one do you want to be? Because the guy that got to go inside and party was the guy that recognized, I got nothing. I need you. I just need you. The guy who, who yeah, you can feel all self-righteous, but you will be outside. That's the guy that thought he was better than everybody else. Do you know his problem wasn't he didn't like fat and calf. Everybody likes fat and calf. Not too many vegetarians in the Gospels. Nothing wrong with it if you're a vegetarian. I'm just saying, back then, everybody liked fat and calf. He's not opposed to the meat. He's not opposed to that. What's his issue? His issue's not the food. His issue's not the party. It's not that he doesn't like to party. It's that he doesn't want to party with that guy. I don't want to eat with that guy. Because I consider myself above that guy. And you've never thrown a party for me. You're throwing one for him. I count him unworthy of your love. That's a problem. Pride will keep you out of the party. Pride will keep you out of the meal. Pride will keep you from receiving from God. Amen. The Bible says he will bring low the proud. He opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Yeah. Praise God. Good news, right? I want to read you something as we bring it down to an ending here. Romans chapter 12. You know, actually, we'll start in Romans 11. Romans 11, in fact, the entire book of Romans deals with the fact that the Jews felt they were not on the same page as the Gentiles. 
They felt, this, this isn't fair. You know, what's going on with the Gentiles? And the entire book of Romans seems to be dealing with this issue that we all needed a Savior. And we all needed the same thing. And that now in these days, he's taking the two groups and he's grafting the wild branch onto the olive branch. And he's taking the Gentiles as messed up as they are and he's bringing them into the family. And he says in Romans 10, he says, the problem with all my old Jewish colleagues and my old Bible school friends is that they think that they're so righteous that instead of receiving the free gift of righteousness, they try to establish their own righteousness. So what happens? They miss out on God's righteousness. What happens? Just what Jesus said, you'll die in your sin. So here's what he says in Romans 11. He says in verse 32, verse 30, he says, just as you were once disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience. He's talking to the Jews about the Gentiles. So these are also now have been disobedient that because of the mercy shown to you, they may also now be shown mercy. For God has shut up all in disobedience so that he might show mercy to all. What is he saying? He exposed our disobedience to us. And he he shut us up because he showed us, you all all were messed up. You all needed it so that he could show mercy to all. Thank God. Isn't it wonderful when God exposes your flaws? He does not expose your flaws to condemn you, but to expose your flaws so he can heal you. It's like the surgeon saying there's something in there. I want to take it out. In order to show you mercy, you had to know you needed mercy. And that's what he did. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Then he says, oh, I I skipped verse 33, which is exactly what I wanted to read. Sorry, let's read that again. He says in verse 33, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, unfathomable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or has become his counselor or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again. Paul here is in in awe of the great wisdom of God and the great mercy of God. He's standing back and going, man, I, I couldn't even dream this up. Then he says this, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Therefore, so even though he said amen, he puts a therefore to connect the thoughts. I've just told you about the great mercy we all received. Even though you didn't think you needed it, we all received it. He says, therefore, by the, brethren, by the mercies of God. Another translation says, in light of the mercies of God. I urge you to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Do you see what he says? In light of his mercy, we are driven to worship. In light of his mercy, we lay our lives down. When you live in the light of his mercy, you not only show mercy, but you love greatly. You not only love greatly, but you become a worshiper. This woman, more than anything, was a worshiper. Being a worshiper doesn't mean you have to be musically talented. Being a worshiper doesn't mean you have to be gifted artistically or, or, or really have to be uh, do, knowing all the Christian moves that we know. Being a worshiper means that you have such love and gratitude for the Savior that saved you that you must express it. And worship is not just songs. It's not just uh, art. Worship is shown through everything we do. Our entire lives are worship. Sometimes I think if there's not a little perfume on the floor that we have to clean up, if there's not a little awkward situations every now and then, has there been true worship? If our worship is so tidy, and I'm not talking about the song service, I'm not talking about the church service, I'm talking about life, if we are going through the routine so much, it might be that it's not real worship, it's a routine we've learned. But I urge you, by the mercies of God, live in the light of his mercy. Live in a constant revelation of his mercy. I want you to go back. Don't go back and dredge up what has already been buried and paid for. But go back and recognize how great you've been saved. Some of you need to tell your testimony to yourself.
And if you were saved in 1972 or you were saved in 2014, go back and tell yourself your testimony. Go back and remind yourself what he took you from and where he put you into, what he placed you to. Don't, I don't want anybody in this room to ever say, I don't have a testimony. I don't have a good testimony. Well, that guy, he's got an amazing testimony. I mean, he was, he was, he was I mean, doing all sorts of, he was slinging drugs. He was shooting people in the head. He was, you know, he, he, hated, he hated black people, Jews, and midgets, you know. He was a terrible person. Jesus saved him. Thank God. Have him every Sunday tell his testimony. Well, thank God. T- let him tell his testimony. But don't think, if you grew up in a fairly normal, well, nothing's normal. If you grew up and you were fairly well behaved, don't think you don't have a great testimony because I'm going to tell you something. You needed Jesus more than you recognized and the rescue that he performed to get you out of hell was just as dramatic for you it was for that guy and you don't know what you recognize. Oh, wow. That's how dead I was and now look how alive I am. You will never again for the rest of your life refuse to give mercy to someone else. Refuse to feel compassion for someone else. Refuse somebody at your table because you recognize I was that person at that table. I was recently reading the story of David and Mephibosheth. Names. Future names for kids, right? The nursery's going to have a couple of Mephibosheths. Jonathan's son, oh my goodness, that's oh, it falls to me, doesn't it? I was thinking about that. How in, in David's time, If there was a rival king, in fact, if you would take the kingdom from a rightful king, the first thing you did is get rid of all of his heirs. Wasn't hard because when King Saul, who tried to kill David for the rest of his life, when he finally died, two of his sons died with him. The other son that was left was just a weakling. He was a real wimp. And he tried to be a king for a while and somebody murdered him and that was the end of that. David becomes a really old man. Or not a really old man, but he's an older king. He's, he's ruled for a while. And he says, are there any heirs left of Saul's line? Are there any sons of Jonathan left? Jonathan was Saul's son and David's friend. He says, I want to show him some kindness. Now, this man, the, the man that they find is Mephibosheth, the last heir of the throne of Israel, the rightful heir to the throne of Israel, if they're doing it like the pagans did it. If they're doing it by... You know, passing from father to son, he's the rightful heir. So the smart thing to do would be to kill him. Mephibosheth, when he was a baby, he was only a baby when his father was killed in battle. And when the news came that his father and his grandpa and his uncles had been killed in battle, the nurse that was holding him panicked, and she, she was so shocked that she dropped him. And he broke both his legs and they never were healed, set properly. And uh, for the rest of his life, he was crippled. So he's brought to David, and he's a crippled, and he has a little son with him. And he's scared. And he says, oh, David, I, you know, and he pours it out, and he just basically begs for his life. And David says, why don't you come to my table? And he restores his land that was rightfully his father's land. He gives him this land and he he sends his servant Ziba to go and look after the land. And he says, but you, you're never going to have to worry about farming. You never have to worry about taking care of this land because you're going to sit at the king's table for the rest of your life. Why? What kind of capacity for mercy and grace did David have? He was a man who'd been shown great mercy. Because he recognized, if you read the Psalms, here is a man who recognized how much he needed the mercy of God. And because he recognized it, he sure had a lot to give. I would love us to be a group of people that recognize how much we needed Jesus. And as we look at him and as we look at his mercy, we stand in awe of it and we have a lot to give. Amen? It's the kind of people I want us to be. Some of you have been born again for a little time, some of you for a long time. I would encourage you all to go back and say, Lord, restore to me the joy of my salvation. You know, when David said the joy of my salvation, you know, David didn't get saved like you got saved because Jesus hadn't come yet. When he's saying the joy of my salvation, he's talking about deliverance. You delivered me. You saved me from death. Well, we've received so much greater of a salvation than even David had. 
We say, Lord, restore to me the joy. What does that mean? When you first get delivered, that's all you can think about is I've been delivered. But after a while, it gets pale in your memory and it's, the edges aren't as sharp. It's not as exciting. Get excited again. How do I get excited again? I look back and go, whoa, look at the mercy of God. And when you live like that, you have a lot of love to give. Amen. Amen. Let's stand up. I want us to do something together.